It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg from The Argonian, and I'm here again with Richard Farley from Tippers.com. Richard, how are you doing? Doing okay. I've been better. I've been worse, but I'm definitely closer to the better part of the spectrum. How are you doing? What, seven days after our first episode, you feeling good about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this was probably a good choice. I'm feeling pretty confident about going forward, um, but I, I guess we'll have to see yes, uh, over time. A lot of pressure. <laughs> There's still, yeah. I'm still definitely judging you. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> well, do I even need to ask if you did your homework last week? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like there was a soccer I need to, to pay more attention <laughs> okay. to. Um, so okay, okay. Unfortunately, there is a lot of soccer to start talk about, and I guess let's start with the Timbers. Um, the Timbers' six-game winning streak came to an end. They drew the LA Galaxy one-to-one here at Providence Park on Saturday. They are still unbeaten in seven games. Our predictions, I, I wouldn't say they were great. Uh, I predicted a Timbers 2, Galaxy 1 result uh, with a Blanco goal and assist. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, and, and Richard predicted Timbers winning 3-1. to one. Um, That also didn't happen. But you you did say a Valeri goal and assist. Uh, and I think you lucked into into just a very small number of points there. I think so, too. So I'm doing points this week. I think neither of us came close in spirit of the game. I think oh, no. we both thought <laughs> that the Timbers would be the superior team. I think the teams were about even. I think the Timbers rightfully regret not getting full points based on the chances they had in the first half or over the first half an hour. I did get that blurry goal, so I'm going to give myself 4.2 points. Not a lot, just some. And you did have a Galaxy goal. I think that counts for something. I'm going to give you 2.71 points. All right. Uh, probably more points than I would have given either of us, but but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, no, I'm not beaten down by years of doing this podcast yet, so I'm still feeling really <laughs> generous towards us. Yeah, uh, we'll see how quickly that changes. Um, so you mentioned it a little bit, but talking about the L.A. game, I, I mean, the attack does have to feel a little bit disappointed. They took 16 shots, 10 of those they put on frame, uh, but a lot of those they send right to the goalkeeper. They don't they don't make it all that challenging, and they're not able to find a goal from the run of play. What do you think was going on that the Timbers weren't able to find that goal or, or find a way to win this game? I think that's a really good question. I almost feel bad being the first to talk about it because I feel like you and I probably have equal contributions here, but one of us has to go first. I think we talked about it last week. Six-game winning streak, how likely is it to go on? Well, things are going to even out over time. And so in on Saturday's game, during Saturday's game, maybe some of the breaks that they got in previous games where a goalkeeper spills a ball to Christian Paredes or somebody fouls Samuel Monteros out of nowhere in the 86th minute, they didn't get those breaks. And as a result, it ended up being a draw instead of a, a win. I do think also... You know, I've talked about it a lot on the site. We see teams going with three central defenders and keeping their back line really tight, which then forces the Timbers to attack out wide. Valeri's not a wide player. Blanco can be a wide player, but he's had most of his success this season coming in underneath the striker. And of course, Armenteros and Adi, they're not wide players. So if teams keep defending like that, you have to assume that the Timbers are going to have to be more effective in the wide spaces, which means the chances that Andres Flores had in particular are going to have to be goals eventually. Yeah, I, I think the Timbers have to be disappointed about their ability to finish in this game. You look particularly about that Andres Flores chance really early in the game. That That's a that's a chance that the Timbers have to finish, that they have to convert. But like you said, they are coming off a six-game winning streak. I, I'm, they are averaging between one and two goals a game. This team has only been shut out once this season. 
So at this point, if you're just looking at this game on its own, it's disappointing. They have to be better in the attack. They have to do better in big moments and find ways to finish and make the goalkeeper work harder. But I don't see this yet as a trend. And like you said, it's something that's going to happen. There's going to be a game where it just things just don't come together. And that might have been this one uh, for the attack. Uh, so it's something to watch and, and see if the attack continues to have these types of problems. But since this isn't something I feel like we've seen consistently this year, it's something at this point I'm not super worried about. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The one thing I worry about is in the long term, if the Timbers are going to need to find a goal scorer beyond their big three. I guess it's big four, but you, they're really only able to play three of them at a time mm-hmm. in the current formation. So I looked back at the numbers and tried to see last year if teams that had kind of a concentration of goal scorers in like their first two goal scorers on the team were disproportionately providing goals like the Timbers. The Timbers, I think, were one of five teams last year to get over 50% of their goals from just two players. And actually, teams that had that concentration were pretty successful. I think eight of the top the 10 teams that were in the top 10 last year, as far as their pairs contributing to their proportion of goals, ended up in the playoffs. What is weird is I looked at this year's data as far as teams that are getting uh, goals for three from three or four players. And this year so far... If you tend to have your goals bunched amongst just a few players, most of those teams are not good so far this year. I think the theory behind that is that you kind of want to establish goal scorers um, early in the season, people that are going to be reliable, and then throughout the year, maybe build on that. Whereas if you just have like a bunch of goals going random places right now, and they're not really true goal scorers, they just happen to be falling to people, that maybe, maybe pretends to a bad outcome as the year goes on. That's a really long way of saying I agree with you. Um, And we'll just have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I think the side that I was maybe a little bit more concerned about in this game in terms of what we're going to see going forward is more from the defensive performance. I think LA had chances in dangerous spots. I, I think the defense probably gave them too much time and space. And obviously the Timbers were using a back line that they had never played before, at least those four on the field together. Cascante and Mabiala at the center back positions and Zarek Valentin and Tuiloma. Um, Tuiloma coming in for Alvis Powell at the outside back position. And so my question to you is, how do you kind of evaluate this defensive performance? And given maybe a little bit of shakiness in the defense the last few games, uh, how much are the Timbers missing Liam Ridgewell? I think they're definitely missing Liam. I don't know really what to think about Saturday's game, even though I've watched it a couple times at this point. When I watched it uh, the first time, I thought L.A. was generating poor chances from good spots. Like a lot of the spots they were getting their chances were crosses and well-marked guys were going up and getting headers that would go down as shots. But because they were well-marked, it really wasn't that dangerous. And then I saw some of the data after the game and the expected goal numbers were pretty much even. So I was wondering if I was being a little bit biased in that regard. So I'm at this point right now where I really don't know if the Timbers defensive performance was that good or that bad. I guess it looks a lot different if Chris Pontius doesn't take that touch and let Bill Tilly run by him and then finish that right inside the right post. Because if that chance doesn't go in and I I just feel dumb even going down this direction. If goals don't go in, your defense (laughs) is good. Uh, Alas, I think it was a mixed performance. I think the Timbers definitely have been better defensively in previous games, but maybe just like the attack, it wasn't good enough or bad enough to set off any alarms for me. I I, I think that, I think for me that against a better team, the Timbers would have been punished more. I, I think that LA is a good attacking team, but they were missing uh, three key players uh, to international duty, and then they're also only playing Zlatan for 18 minutes. And so this is a very weakened LA Galaxy attack, and I felt like they were able to get in pretty good spots around the box. Zarek Valentin, after the game, said it, particularly in the first half, that he thought the defense um, really had, did not play well. They were too loose. Their communication wasn't as good as it needed to be. Um, the communication for me was something that that I seemed like and obviously you don't know as much watching the press box as you would know on the field but it seemed like something that might be a little bit of concern and I think that's one of the reasons you know not having Liam Ridgewell in there uh, is problematic for this team in terms of maintaining their shape in terms of making sure they're staying tight on defense and not allowing these openings in dangerous spots so for me I think it is more of a concern than it is for you going forward Uh, we'll find out hopefully uh, we don't have an update yet but we'll find out hopefully when Liam Ridgewell is going to be coming back and I, I think think that'll give me a bit more confidence in this defense. But right now, I think with the changes on the back line, with the lack of consistency there, and maybe not that leader in the center back position that the Timbers need, 
I'm a little bit worried going up against some better teams, how this team's going to do. Hearing you describe that and describe what Zarek said did remind me of one thing that came to mind when I was breaking down the Chris Pontius goal. I sensed a lack of urgency. Definitely players assuming that, well, I don't want to say definitely because I'm not in their head, but based on how they were acting, how they were not sprinting, how they were not acting as if their contribution was going to be needed, it looked like players were assuming that their teammate was going to get the job done. That's fine. You always want to have faith in your teammate, but defensively, you also have to be prepared for what happens if the next thing doesn't go right. And it seemed like on that goal, particularly as that ball goes from right to left across the line to find Chris Pontius isolated on Bill Tuiloma, a lot of people just assumed that Bill was going to be able to do that job. And maybe if Chris Pontius doesn't take that touch and doesn't hit it perfectly inside that post, yes, the job gets done. But I think that lack of intensity is not something that we've seen in the last six games from the Timbers. You know, we, particularly after the Orlando game and the Minnesota game that they won here, but in the second half defensively looked a little bit shaky. I think we saw the group kind of come together and really say, we need to put together a 90 minute performance. And that, what we saw against the Galaxy over the first 20 minutes, or maybe just like a sliver within that 20 minutes, hinted to me that maybe a little bit of the intensity had died off amid that six game winning streak. I think one of the other points that came out of the game, and we got a lot of questions on this, I didn't write down. Um, I, I guess a moose was one of the questions we got, but we got a few questions on, on the same thing, which is why do we think we saw no wingers in the 18 on Saturday? Uh, no Espria, no Arboleda. Um, I, I think this question became a bigger deal because late in the game when the Timbers should have, we assume at home, trying to be pushing for that late goal to try to get the win, they subbed on Marco Farfan into the midfield, uh, something that I think they had to do because they didn't have a winger on the bench that they were able to put in and maybe a wide attacking position. And so I think that was uh, a concern in the game and something a bit strange. Um, just I, just to talk a little bit about it first, I, this was something that I uh, pointed out after the game. I asked Savaresi about it uh, in the post-game press conference. His response was essentially that the club rewarded the players who he felt performed the best in training. And now, that response is uh, fine, but... It does raise questions for me on what's going on with Espria and Arboleda because you, even though you reward the players that do well in training, there is positional needs you need to have in the 18. And so I, I think there has to be something going on in training, some decision, something that Savaresi is seeing to feel like he can, he needs to put other players in the 18 regardless of position and not have a winger in the 18 because he doesn't feel for whatever reason Espria and Arboleda should be in there. And so that raises a lot of questions for me. And I think this is something um, we're going to have to continue to look at when we're seeing what 18 uh, Savarasi is rolling out. Uh, okay. Let's actually talk this out because I think we're getting a little bit too podcasty. Like you talk for two minutes, I talk for three because I feel like this is some place where we're actually going to have some disagreement. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you that we didn't see an Espria or an Arboleda in the 18. I, I agree with you on the plain facts there. I don't know why I approached it like that. But when we're talking about players that can play wide, Sebastian Blanco played as a winger all of last year. And obviously he hasn't done that this year, although he did start there at the beginning of this year before the formation change. Um, Samuel Armenteros had to play wider once Adi came in uh, for Valeri. He's not really a winger, more of an outside forward, but he, in preseason he did play wide in a 4-3-3 for a little bit. So he could play there. Andres Flores could also play at that position too. Uh, we saw that a little bit in preseason. And Giovanni Savarese has talked about how he can play so many different positions. I think with Marco, and I think uh, Giovanni Savarese said this in response to your question on Saturday, that it seemed to be as much a defensive substitution as an attacking substitution, which probably seems weird from our point of view because it was a 1-1 game late at home. But maybe Savarese saw something to where the left side of the attack was going to be exploited. In the, uh, against LAFC here, uh, Zarek Valentin talked about how they started lo LAFC started loading up on Zarek's side, and they brought Andres Flores in to help reinforce that. Andres Flores eventually had to go to right back in this game after Bill Tuiloma went out. Maybe Marco Farfan was coming on as protection and maybe not the ideal substitution Giovanni Sabarese would have made, but in those circumstances, maybe he felt the defensive substitution was, uh, was what he needed. So much for not being podcasty. I think that was like 90 seconds. <laughs> I, I mean, I, 
Yeah, I think there are definitely different perspectives to look at, at this. And um, obviously, it is important for him to reward the players that are performing well in training. That's something that he said is important. But I, I think he just limited his options of by not having a winger on the bench and put him in a position where maybe he had to think more defensively late in the game or, or had to think differently based on the personnel he had available. And so for me, it did raise questions because that is something we usually see. We usually see a winger on the bench. Clearly, they can move Blanco around, but Blanco is also potentially a player that might might need to be subbed off for one reason or another. So it's still something that stands out to me. We'll see how it kind of works moving forward. Uh, But yeah, I I think usually you expect from teams to have a winger on the bench. And I, I think that's why your question made sense. I would also say this. Dyron Espira had been on the bench. He's been on the bench for most of the games this year. Lately, he's been down at T2. Do you feel like the times he was brought on as a substitute have led to positive contributions? I have to think back on the times he's brought on. I I feel like there's at least a few times that I've pointed to him and thought he's brought something more to the team. I know he has, obviously, in the past. Um, I I think his history with this team shows that he's capable of bringing something in the attack. But, I mean, thinking back, I I don't feel like he's seen all that much time this year or necessarily contribute all all that much off the bench. But we know what he's capable of doing um, in moments. And he does, you know, provide just something different to bring in late into a game into the attack that potentially could help the Timbers if they're driving for a late goal. I I think that's fair enough. I think I can see both sides on that. I understand the curiosity. When I think about Sabadese's decisions, they all make sense to me. But ultimately, even if you support his decision, it comes down to sacrificing some flexibility as far as the attacking options you can use late in the game. And maybe that was a good trade-off, but uh, it's one that at least deserves an explanation, right? Yeah. So we'll be following up on that. Another thing we're going to have to be following up on is the injury updates. We don't yet have any. I know a lot of people are wondering on Vitas in particular uh, because he's a player we just haven't seen in a while. Um, All I can say on that is he's been training with the first team and that's been for a week or so now, uh, maybe two. And Savarese has just said that they need to feel like he's fully ready to contribute to the first team in terms of his fitness and health. And so that's a little bit of a strange one, and we'll have to see how it goes. But he is back in training and fully out there with the team. Should we move on to Open Cup? Yeah, let's move on there. So I want to ask you, how much do you care about Open Cup? Very, very little. (laughs) (laughs) We have a team from San Jose, and you still can't care about it that much. Oh, I, I have no personal love for San Jose or anything, even if I, even if my family is yeah, from I guess, there. I guess that was a little uh, bit misleading on yeah, my part. Yeah, no, the, the MLS team from San Jose uh, is very different than... Yeah, you're not I actually from that home. close to no. San Jose. Um, yeah, I, I mean... There's a I think we should say, of course, when the game's happening, which is Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., the Timbers will host San Jose in the fourth round of the U.S. Open Cup. But, I mean, I, I think it's hard to get a little bit super excited for a game like this um, when we know it's the Timbers' bottom priority of the different competitions they, speak, they play in. Um, and we expect, um, our first question on is where they rotate their lineup, I'm expecting to see a T2 team essentially here, or at least some of the players that are in the 18 and not getting starts, maybe a, maybe a few of them in the lineup, and then a few players that have basically been exclusively playing for T2. That's the mix I'm expecting in this game. It's not that the Timbers aren't taking it seriously, but it's definitely a second priority. And for me, when I think of my opinion of the U.S. Open Cup, I just think it, it kind of comes in and you have to deal with a midweek game when they're also dealing with the MLS schedule, which is more important. Yeah. Uh, so I've never been a big fan of it. I'm with you. I think it's a little bit more exciting this year because the Timbers have made such a concerted effort to not only build out the depth of the first team, but we see players like Darickson Vuelto, Marvin Loria on the second team, players that would be really exciting to see where they measure up against MLS competition. Do we even know San Jose is going to provide MLS competition? We don't know that for sure. Um, There are other players like Renzo Zambrano down there who... It would be interesting to see play. And then there are the players, some of whom we saw in the 18 on Saturday, who would be very interesting to see how they do at this level. So players like Foster Langsdorf and Eric Williamson, Modu Jadama, I would bet that they play. I guess my bet is that the players who started on Saturday are very unlikely to go, except for Diego Chara for unfortunate reasons. Diego Chara picking up a yellow card 
against um, what was the opponent? <laughs> like Galaxy, it's so far ago. So he's likely. I guess he's likely to play tomorrow. We don't know for sure. Um, we'll ask in a few minutes. But I think the only excitement for me is seeing how those players blend into the environment with a bunch of other first team players and we can get a little bit of an idea as to how far they are away from contributing to the first group. Yeah. I think it's important to mention though, that San Jose, I believe plays LAFC uh, on Saturday. And I I think they're going to, that's going to be a very very important game for them. One, they're going to, care a lot more than the U.S. Open Cup midweek game, and they're coming off a weekend game as well. So I'd be surprised if we don't see San Jose rotate their lineup. I think even if they don't play the same types of players or the Timbers, even if there's a few more MLS players out there, which we don't know, um, I I think by necessity they're going to have to make some changes in their lineup for this midweek game. So, yeah, I I agree that we'll see a lot of the same players that you've mentioned, uh, Foster Langsdorf, Eric Williamson, um, others in, in this game, and it'll be interesting to see them competing at this level. But if we look at the U.S. Open Cup game last year, it, it might feel more like a T2 game uh, than a first-team game. But it will be interesting if Char is in there. That'll, uh, that'll change things up a little bit. It, it should, yeah. And there isn't a pure defensive mid coming up from T2 for this game. Or there isn't one at T2 that you would expect would keep Char from getting the minutes that he's going to need considering he won't play on Saturday. The only other thing I'll add is I uh, actually had to write my preview for this game right before you showed up here at beautiful Providence Park in one of the radio booths here where we record. So since San Jose last faced the Timbers, they played five games. They've gone one, three and one during that span. And as far as their lineups are concerned, seven players have started all five of those games. Two other regulars are at the World Cup. Annabelle Godoy and Harold Cummings are representing Panama. So when it comes to rotating players, it seems like they would need to because they haven't had enough, a lot of natural rotation in their lineup. The only other thing that I wrote about is that San Jose is, is in a place with their lack of results and really their lack of playing identity that I think almost any opportunity to get something good going has to be seized. They should bet that the Timbers aren't going to play their full first team on Wednesday. And in that way, this could be an opportunity with some small rotation to get something positive going. I think they're a team that needs to take advantage of every 90 minutes possible so far, but not to the extent that they should be putting players at risk health-wise. So I do wonder how they're going to approach this game. Ultimately, I think they're going to approach it like you said. Uh, So moving on to Sporting Kansas City, the Timbers uh, will have play their MLS uh, competition game on Saturday against SKC uh, here at 7.30 p.m. Sporting Kansas City has obviously been one of the best teams in the Western Conference this year. But instead of having me and Richard preview this, uh, we talked to someone who has a little bit more knowledge about Sporting Kansas City. So uh, right now we're going to welcome in Sam McDowell. We're now excited to welcome in Sam McDowell from the Kansas City Star. Uh, He's the beat writer for Sporting Kansas City, and he's going to help us preview the Timbers-Kansas City game. Sam, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So where I wanted to start is to let our listeners know, uh, get some information on Kansas City. Um, My question is, what's the one thing people who don't know about Sporting Kansas City uh, don't know Sporting Kansas City well, like Timbers fans, need to know about what's changed with this team between last year and this year? Well, I think uh, a few things, but most notably personnel. You know, there was a team that really struggled to score last year. They were the best defensive team in the league last year. I, I think eight fewer goals than anyone else in the league in 2017, And uh, but they still didn't see results out of it. Still in the first round of the playoffs for the fourth consecutive year, they were on the road. And, and when you looked at why, it, it was mostly they weren't scoring enough goals. So they really changed their personnel and, and on their front line. I mean, did they start three guys who didn't get a lot of playing time last year or just weren't on the team altogether with, with Johnny Russell on the wing, who's already scored five goals. Kyrie Shelton at striker, who hasn't scored a lot, but did they feel like he does enough things well that opens things up for some other guys? And then Daniel Shallowy, a, a, a homegrown kid, and you can't see I'm putting that in air quotes because he's actually from Hungary, but they brought him over for a year, and, and technically he's a homegrown kid, but uh, 21 years old and, and having a really good season on the other wing. So really, the, their offense just looks completely different than it did in 2017. Sam, first of all, it's good to talk to you because you've been killing it on this beat for a while now, so it's good to actually exchange some audio uh, compliments back and forth. Um, but Thanks, the, I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, the thing that comes to mind with Kansas City, and not just Kansas City, almost every team this time of year, you look at the standings and it's still so early in the season, and particularly because Kansas City has had 
had trouble finishing seasons over the last couple of years. My first question to you is pretty basic. How good do you think they actually are right now? I actually think that they are the best team in the Western Conference. When when you look at the the results of the games, you know, I, the, they're in a virtual tie with Dallas in the West right now, and I, I know they're two points ahead of Dallas, but I always look at that points per match more than more than the actual total of points, just because you know Dallas has played fewer games right now. But when you look at Dallas, I, I want to say what is it all but one, or maybe even all of their matches they've just won by exactly one goal. I think they've had a lot of breaks fall their way. Uh, when you just look at the most complete team, I, I think right now in the Western Conference, the Sporting Kansas City is going to be the team to beat. Having said that, I think the East is stronger than the West right now. So I still think they're going to have to make some moves in the summer window, potentially get a striker to compete with those teams that are on the upper echelon in the Eastern Conference. When you look at Atlanta, NYC, I still think it's going to be there at season's end. So, But I think it's a team that for the first time since 2013 in Kansas City, they're, they're going to be one that actually can contend for, for some championships outside of the Open Cup competition. Well, given what, what you're saying there, I mean, how do you feel in terms of um, the attention they're getting, the respect they're getting compared to other contenders in MLS? It's You know, it's one of those things in Kansas City that's kind of funny because they could get all the attention in the world and Peter Vermees is still going to talk this team up as one that flies under the radar and is, gets the underdog role because that's the role he likes to play. That's sort of the persona that his, his teams take on because of who he is and his personality. So... Uh, they, I, I'm sure that if, if you went individually across the guys in the locker room, they'd probably either a say they don't pay attention, which is not really true, or they would say that they don't get enough attention. But I don't think there's anyone, you know, nationally that that maybe says this team isn't that good because I think that a lot of the pundits, when when they actually break down and look at the teams, especially if you're already sitting atop the conference, and then you actually analyze the way they're playing. I I think that they're they're getting the respect they deserve. That's interesting. I think that, you know, the debate with Kansas City is, are they good or they are elite right now? And so, you know, it's so hard to compare the Eastern Conference where there seem to be some juggernauts with the Western Conference where there are teams like Kansas City and Dallas and Portland to a certain extent trying to establish themselves on the same level as, say, Atlanta. But to that end, Sam, I wanted to ask you, you look at Kansas City's attack and it looks like it's more potent than it's been in years past. But 10 of their goals are concentrated in two games against Vancouver and Minnesota. And Kansas City has seen opponents draw six red cards this year without accumulating one. So I wanted to ask you, regarding the attacking performance, how much do those things factor in? How much are the attacking numbers just a reflection of a couple of high-performance games and taking advantage against of some teams that made mistakes and got people sent off? Yeah, I think when, when you look at, uh, at some of those situations... Uh, you know, the, they had somebody sent off in that Vancouver game that you're talking about that was 6 nothing, but they are already up 3 nothing 40 minutes of that match. They actually scored at a, at a little bit less of a rate after that game became 11-on-9 than, than before when it was still 11-on-11. 11 11. That was uh, Johnny, uh, Ron- you know, this, Johnny Russell's Cristiano Ronaldo impression, yeah, that right? Was his, yeah, yeah, that was his hat-trick night. So then you had, uh, you know, this last week they were up 3-1 on Minnesota already when, when there's a red card. Uh, the week before, there was a red card to Columbus, and they didn't score on it at all. Um, I did, you know, I'd have to refresh my memory on the other three, but those are three examples that kind of stand out that didn't really impact the match the way that they, they could have otherwise. Now, Columbus, you could argue if they don't get the red card, they were out playing Sporting Kansas City, I think, in that first half hour. But uh, you know, I, I think that the biggest change in their attack is the way that they play on the road more so than the way that they play at home. Now, there are some teams that maybe aren't bunkering Kansas City as much as they were when, when they came into Children's Mercy Park because, uh, you know, they feel like maybe they have some more solutions to that. Uh, but it, it's a team that last year won twice on the road all season. Now, one of those was the one nothing game in Portland that they won early in the season, but that was it. They didn't win after the, on the road after that match. They've already won three times on the road this year. So I think that's where their, their offense really showcases that, that it's significantly improved from last year. So what do you think this team's best attacking group look, is going to look like come year's end? It's a really good question because I think that I, I'm still confident that Sporting Kansas City is going to have a, a new striker sometime in the summer window. Now, I, I also said that they'd have somebody new in the off season, And you can imagine how that was taken from, you know, Twitter mentions and things like that when that didn't happen. 
But I, I think I still think that Sporting Kansas City gets somebody in the summer window that's going to play striker for them by the end of the year. Uh, but Daniel Shallow and Johnny Russell are, are playing so well on the wings right now. There's there's no reason to predict that anybody other than them end up as part of that front line. Sam, one of the things that has remained constant with this team amid the losses of players like Dom Dwyer and Benny Failharbor has been Peter Vermees and his vision. Although a couple months back we were hearing links between him and U.S. soccer, although those have, for well, not, maybe not obvious reasons to everybody, diminished a little bit over the last couple months. How real was it, the possibility of him taking up a management position with U.S. soccer? And what do you think that would have done to the identity of Sporting Kansas City if they had lost Peter Vermees? I don't really even know if that's a question that, that Peter knows himself. You know, he, he did talk to, to U.S. soccer and they, they asked him questions about both the GM position and the coaching position. Um, you know, I asked him whether or not that was for a dual role or one or the other. I think he felt like it was more interviewing for one and then interviewing for the other rather than a dual role. I'm not sure exactly how attractive that position would be to Peter Vermees. He, he's a guy that likes to be in control. He's a guy that likes to make all the decisions. And if you put him in a role where he's only allowed to make some of the decisions, you know, he's, he may do, maybe doesn't have full control over the roster that he's coaching, or he's got control over the roster, but all of a sudden he's not implementing the, the X's and O's strategy on, on game day. I don't envision him in that type of role. I don't know how attractive that would be. Um, my my guess is that, you know, when he, he talks to U.S. soccer about it, and of course, you know, he, he's, he's pretty tight-lipped about the exact nature of that conversation, but my, my, my guess would be that, you know, he, he would present something that would be similar to what he has in Sporting Kansas City, and I don't think that U.S. soccer wants something similar to that. You know, with, with Jurgen Klinsmann having basically full control, I don't think they're looking to bring in somebody else like that, so... I don't know how great of a fit that would be, um, but certainly if, if he left Sporting Kansas City, uh, while I think they have guys on staff that, that might be promoted to the positions that, that he holds, it, it would be a, a significant, massive loss. I don't think you could understate just how important he's been to this club. I mean, he oversees, he's the, he's the technical director, the coach, but he also, you know, it, it's his vision that ownership bought into to establish the academy. We saw some young kids play over the weekend. Uh, you're starting to see, you know, the the product of, of that vision trickle in here. So um, I, he's by far the most important figure, I think, to this club. Before we let you go, I, I just want to get your thoughts on uh, on the Timbers and, and what your prediction is, uh, if you don't mind giving it for for the game Saturday. I think you know it, it might have been one of you guys I read this from, but I mean with, with Char out, I mean the, the numbers with him out. Uh, what is it since since 2014 or 2015 that they haven't won? Is that right? Yeah, 17 games uh, dating back to I believe July 2015. Yeah, I mean that's that's an incredible statistic, and I I know from talking to uh, coaches, even assistant coaches here in Kansas City, they feel like he's a really key player for them, and man, do those numbers bear that out? So. Uh, I, I still think that Portland's going to be one of those teams that's there at the, at the end of the year. You know, when you look at the West, uh, LAFC is, is, I think, even with them right now, I think that maybe they're going to be hit a little bit harder during this World Cup cycle than some other teams are. It may give Portland a chance to advance. Um, I, I'm interested to see how long Salt Lake lasts in, in that top three, four. Uh, but I, I, I think when you look at the West, maybe Portland's in that two to four range. Uh, hosting a home playoff game in, in one fashion or another. Uh, but let's say uh, with Saturday, I, I'm going to say Sporting Kansas City gets a 2-1 win. All right. Uh, we'll see if that happens. I need your guys' predictions too then. Did you guys already make those? Well, we usually do yeah. it at the end of the show, but I think it's yeah. only fair. Um, you you want to do it well, now, Jamie? You want to go ahead? Sure. I guess, I guess I'll throw it out here now. Um, uh Unfortunately, what I wrote to, to be uninteresting is also a Sporting Kansas City 2-1 win. That's what I have on my mental notes here. Um, so okay. We're, gonna, well, I, we're I on stole, the same I boat I stole there. mine from you then. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in light of Chara being absent, I went re- just completely ridiculous history setting. I guess not ridiculous because the Timbers could conceivably win 2-1. Uh, but I'm predicting the Timbers winning 2-1 just because... Because the idea of finally breaking this Chara curse, I think, would be interesting. 
it has to, you would think it has to end sometime. I mean, that is just, when it, when I, uh, like I said, I think I read that from one of you guys, a uh, tweet or something, but that, that just absolutely shocked me. If he's a player, he's, if he is, you would still think sometime along the line that they would have won once without him. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think the club feels that way too, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll have to see which way it goes. Um, but Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. I, I think we... Uh, us and our listeners know a lot more about what to expect in the game now um, and we always appreciate your time so thank you absolutely thanks for having me guys thank you again to sam it's always great to get a perspective from someone that's on the ground covering a team uh, like sporting kansas city and to find out a little bit more about the timbers opponent uh, before saturday's game so that that was great that sam was able to make some time to come on what, what were your takeaways from from his interview I, there was a lot there um what were some of the big points that you pulled out well probably the point that I'm going to hold on to most is the one that's least relevant to the game is him describing the situation around Peter Vermes, which isn't relevant anymore, but it is interesting to hear his perspective that Vermes probably would not have liked that job with U.S. soccer. Beyond that, and you could tell this in the prediction that I made, I'm not as high on Kansas City as he is, and I think listeners should definitely trust him over me. But you can tell in my questions, I've seen some things from Kansas City that makes me a little bit skeptical. I think they've gotten a little bit lucky in their man-up situations this year. A lot of their goals are concentrated in just a few games. So kind of their median performance, I don't think is that good. But I also admit to being very biased because come the end of each season, Kansas City is a much worse team than it seems like they are during the summer. So come the summer each season, I'm just waiting for that decline to start. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he was so high on Kansas City, even talking about you know how they've done in past years. And as someone on the ground, I think he was indicating that he may see a difference in this team. So I think that's something to pay attention to um, and what I took out of those interviews. The other point that he made was obviously about Diego Chara not being in the game and how that might help Kansas City. And so <laughs> I just wanted to touch on that. Um, with you before we move on to some listener questions. I, I mean, how big of a deal do you think uh, it's going to be for Chara not being there? And, and we have a question from Roy. Do you think that Geo is going to have to change formation without Chara against Kansas City, or, or what are kind of the options here? So we saw at the beginning of the year that Chara's absence is still huge, but we also saw that in a different formation, and now they're playing a formation that they have never played in the club's history before. And as you and Chris talked about a lot, that could be described as three defensive midfielders. I didn't always agree with that description, but it allows you in different phases of the game to play with three defensive midfielders. So at least they have a setup now that can compensate for Chara's absence better than they had before. Unfortunately, that hasn't been proven without Chara yet. This will be the first time they play the 4-3-2-1 without Diego Chara. It was implemented when he first got healthy for the Dallas game. So I think it's pure conjecture. And I think based on the past, we have to know that even if this formation helps, it's still going to be a huge, huge challenge to try to raise their level to the same place it usually is without Diego Chara. Yeah, I mean, I think we could see Lawrence Olam come into the midfield, which is obviously a very different look than, than Chara. Um, could potentially see Bill Tuiloma if Alvis Pallet is back, move into the, the midfield. Um, but, I mean, with Andy Polo also gone, with Davi Guzman also gone, I think the Timbers options here are a little bit limited. And so for me, it's particularly worrisome. I am not sure that we'll see a formation change. I, I think, as you said, they, they might just stick with what's been working and, and just try to put some players in. But it's going to be a very different look. And... and uh, my confidence level definitely isn't, isn't super high right now. I'm glad that you brought up Bill, though. Uh, we saw Bill's versatility this weekend going out to right back. And at right back, I think people got to see some of the skill level he has. A couple of crosses he hit over to the left side. People can see how cleanly he hits a ball. And people who have played, who have seen T2 play, know that against uh, the Galaxy 2 team this year, he had what was about a 65-yard box-to-box uh, um, secondary assist on a goal where uh, one of the best passes of the year at that level. But he can also play in midfield, and that kind of distribution could really help switch play from there. The only problem is that he played on Saturday. He's probably going to have to play on Saturday again, you would think, or at least he's in contention to do so. Um, and Lawrence Olin probably needs some time. So that, that kind of feeds into our next question a little bit because we were talking about formations. Uh, Jared asked the Soccer Made in Portland account, uh, is the 4-3-2-1 Geo's long-term plan, or will we see the return of the 4-3-3 high press come the next transfer window? I want to know your opinion on that, starting with, would you describe the previous formation as a 4-3-3? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it can be described as a 4-3-3. I, I mean, this can sort of be described as a 4-3-3-2. Obviously, they're different. I, I think 4-2-3-1 is how you may be would have described the other formation. Um, I, I think that Savarese is flexible, and this is what's working right now, the 4-3-2-1. And I don't think he's committed to finding a way to get out of the 4-3-2-1 if it's going to continue to work. And given that the Timbers are unbeaten in seven games, I don't see him moving away from that at this point. Now, if the team begins to struggle, yeah, at that point, we're going to maybe see a change. But I think for the moment, it's it's a formation that's working. It's, it fits, I think, the personnel that he has at the moment. I, I mean, if they moved back to the maybe the four two three one, I think that would fit more with maybe Andy Polo coming back because we do know that he can provide um, some more of that width as a true winger and maybe some more of that pace in the box. And so I think if they're going to move back to that position in, or the formation in terms of personnel, it doesn't make as much sense with Andres Flores fill, sort of filling this, that role right now as it does when Andy Polo comes back in. I agree with all that. And the only thing I would add is something that we talked about two shows ago with Chris. There's this give and take right now between t- teams figuring out how to solve this 4-3-2-1 formation and what the Timbers will then have to do once that happens. And I don't think that give and take has reached its conclusion yet, although each week I do think we see that inching forward. Uh, Speaking of inching forward, I like that transition I just did. Uh, Eric asks, would a team of 11 Diego Chiraz beat a team of 11 Diego Valeris? And we know the answer to this is it's a tie. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure. I I actually I actually think a, a team of Diego Charas might be a, a beaded team of Diego Valeri's, and, and that's just because I, I think that Valeri would struggle against that uh, defensively, and mm-hmm. so the Chara the Charas would be able to find a goal. It might not be a spectacular goal. Um, although Chara has had a few pretty spectacular goals when he pretty does. Pretty much only scores spectacular goals. <laughs> so maybe goals. it would be a spectacular goal. But um, I, I think the defense uh, that Chara would be able to provide was, is going to win out in that game ultimately. So a team of 10 Chara's and one Valeri against a team of 10 Valeri's and one Chara. <laughs> um, a team of, <laughs> I don't know. The Charaz just need one Valeri, yeah. don't they? I mean, I think so. I think that's all. Yeah. I think the Charaz with one Valeri. I mean, then they have their goal scorer and then they can defend the rest. And yeah, I think that I think that one would probably be more lopsided. The final question before we move on to our hot takes. Over under for Adi total goals this year. Does he even sniff double digits? It's hard. I mean, it depends what direction he goes in terms of whether he's starting or not uh, and how many opportunities he gets. I, I think that we're going to see uh, more from Audi this year, but I wouldn't be surprised if that total is... I think I think eight might be a decent guess. 8.5, over, under on 8.5. I think... I think he's going to go over 8.5, but it's probably going to be pretty close. I'm completely with you. It's less about Fernando's performance and more about the playing time. So in that way, it might be more about Samuel Armenteros' performance than what Adi is going to give the team. Chris Memorial, Chris Reifer Memorial hot take <laughs> interlude. Um, I'm going to go first. All right. I'm fully getting into the spirit of this. I think I'm catching on. So I was really impressed this week about um, how Zarek Valentin handled Roman Alessandrini. He had this one little thing that he was tricking Alessandrini into going right. He would stomp with his right foot, knowing that would... Sp- um, necessitate Alessandrini going to the line and then he would off that right foot spring towards the line and Alessandrini never got by him all game so as I was doing that I was thinking to myself well when other teams see that they're gonna maybe take advantage of it but right now Zarek Valentin is the best left back in major league soccer <laughs> that is a hot take it's very hot but it was also very hot on Saturday so maybe I'm a little <laughs> bit still mind warped on it but on Saturday, Zarek Valentin was very, very good. So my hot take is, at the moment, Zarek Valentin is the best left back in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty, <laughs> I think that's a pretty hot take. I, yes. I think that you, you, I, I think most teams, when they're looking at a left back, if they were to sign their ideal left back, um, even looking at the performances Valentin's putting in, I, I still don't think he's bringing. Uh, providing the width and coming into the attack as much as any team in MLS would want their left back to be able to do. And so, yeah, I think he's putting in some really good defensive shifts right now. I think he brings a lot of leadership and communication to the back line, especially with Ridgewell out. I think that's necessary for the Timbers. But going forward, there's... 
there's a number of left backs in MLS that are better at him than that. And I think when you're looking at a complete left back, you have to have that. So how hot was my take then? It was very hot. Thank I you. think it was very hot. Thank so you very that, much. That is... Try to are, keep up, Jamie Goldberg. How hot is your take going to be? You are understanding the, the concept of the segment. I don't know if I understand it quite as well, because <laughs> I think it's going to be hard for me to live up to anything close to that. But I did want to rant a little bit about uh, this next topic, which is why I put it here. It's probably not quite as hot, but... I think, and I think this has been brought up a, a lot this week, but I think MLS needs to rethink playing midday games in the late spring and summer, even if it costs the league a national TV game here or there, because I, I don't think it's a good product. I think the first half of that LA Galaxy game was pretty good overall um, in terms of an enjoyable soccer game to watch. I thought both teams looked gassed in the second half. And I think when you look at the Seattle game earlier this year, I think that entire game was hard to watch because both teams, because of the weather, uh, just didn't were not at their best. I, I mean, it's 80 degrees outside in Portland. It's probably over 100 on the turf. It, it is very warm down there. And you even saw Sebastian Blanco taking off his cleats maybe 20, 30 minutes into the game. I, I think just to take them off and put some water in them and put them back on because it's that hot trying to run around. And so, yes, the league is going to get this opportunity because of that's the time that's going to work for national TV to showcase this, these games in front of a national TV audience. But is that really the product that you want to showcase? Um, I, I don't think so. And so ultimately, if it means sacrificing a few national TV games, I, I think that's worth it if it means we're going to get better uh, games overall. I tend to agree with you. Um, I want to take this beyond just being a turf issue. Obviously, as you described, that's a part of it when it comes to Portland, as are the fans, because the fans create an environment that means ESPN and Fox are going to demand have home games at Providence Park on in times that fit into their schedule. But we also see this being a problem in other places and in other leagues, too, quite frankly. Um, Houston, this is, this is a problem. Kansas City, we've had problems with heat there, too. It's not like it's just a Portland issue or just a turf issue. And I think to the NWSL where they are scheduling games really more around the idea of trying to get as many fans in the stadium as possible at some points. And almost every game in Houston ends up being just a dire, dire affair. And I feel bad almost for the Houston Dash players because they don't get to show how good they are a lot of times because the games become a war of attrition and a battle of endurance rather than a show of skill. And um, I think there does need to be another solution somehow, some way. But as you, as we both know, given the nature of the TV contracts for this league, that's probably not going to happen very soon. Yeah. So your, your take sure. was ice cold, ironically, <laughs> yeah. or paradoxically, not ironically, <laughs> paradoxically. Uh, but we started talking about the NWSL for a little bit. Should we talk about the Thorns? Uh, I, think, I think we have to. Right? I mean, well, look, I, I, actually, this is a good week to talk about the Thorns because usually throughout the course of their history under Mark Parsons, it's been pretty steady results. When, last Wednesday was not a steady result. No, no maybe, maybe we have more to talk about and more to analyze uh, if, that, if that's something we want to do. Um, yeah, I mean, the Thorns fell 4-1 to one to the North Carolina Courage uh, at Providence Park. Uh, that was their most lopsided loss uh, at home in, in the Mark Parsons era. North Carolina continues to be a step above every other team in the league. Uh, they are creating, I, I think, uh, it's not going to be surmountable dis, uh, distance between themselves and the rest of the league uh, in terms of the standings. Um, to note, Catherine Reynolds uh, had made her 100th appearance and scored the lone goal for the Thorns. That was her first goal of her NWSL career, so uh, that was fitting for her, but obviously the result um, was probably not something she was very happy about. Hmm. Um, our predictions were wrong. <laughs> say. Um, I predicted a North Carolina... Well, I, I did get the North Carolina win, uh, I you predicted did. that the North Carolina would win one to nothing with McDonald goal. McDonald did not uh, score a goal. Um, I did <laughs> not get the sort of feel of the game as it turned out. Uh, and you predicted a one-one draw with the Haran goal, and don't don't really see much in there unless we're we're going to give you some uh, consolation <laughs> points for the uh, getting one goal for the Thorns. But you're handing out the points this week. I think I deserve some consolation for that, but not as much consolation as you for actually getting the North Carolina win. I feel like predicting a Jessica McDonald goal looks really bad considering she missed two sitters from (laughs) probably a combined range of four yards. So at the same time, you have to get points for the win. Um, I feel like we were more off on this than we were the Timbers game. So I'm going to give you 3.1 points still 
not a lot in my mind, but still optimistic, Richard, here. And I'm going to give myself 0.7. All right. I, I still felt that both of us... I think that's fair enough. I felt that both of us uh, didn't really get the feel of that game. No, I thought we both were thought this was going to be, you know, p- particularly based on the recent history of these teams, a grinded out affair. Mm-hmm. And it certainly started that way. I think I yeah. said to, I was sitting next to you for this one. I always forget because we sit next to each other for one set of games and I not the so, other. Yeah. I think about 25 minutes through this game, I said to you, there's going to be no goals in this game. Yeah. Then the penalty came and then the second half breakdowns <laughs> came. And to me, it really felt like, not quite a game of two halves, but more like a game of 50 minutes and then six minutes of ugh. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the the Thorns had a breakdown that's been more characteristic of them this year, but but generally overall in the Mark Parsons era hasn't been something we've seen. And to concede three goals uh, in six minutes uh, is something they have to be really disappointed with. Uh, Tyler asks, um, to, I think this is a good place a good talking point to jump off of anyone who's been following the NWSL this season knows how dominant the courage have been. But that being said, how alarming is this result uh, for the thorns, especially at home? Well, I don't think it's alarming from the thorns perspective as much. If you take their performance in isolation, because although they had their bad moments, some defensive breakdowns converted, could have converted better in attack. I didn't think they performed that much different than they had throughout most of the course of this year. So if you weren't alarmed by a one nothing win in Washington or a 1-1 draw in Utah, I don't think you should have been alarmed by Wednesday's performance. The problem is they went up against a team that has played better than I've ever seen a team play in the NWSL, which I've covered this league since the its existence, thankfully, because it's less than six years. But what we saw on Wednesday is a team that if they played like that every week would be clearly the best team that this league has ever seen. So the alarm that Thorns fans need to have is the gap between North Carolina and the Thorns, which a lot of people coming into Wednesday's match probably thought was small or could be small is actually huge. And it's huge between almost every team in North Carolina at this point. The questions that we have to ask ourselves as the season goes on are how much improvement does Portland need to make between now and game 25 in order to catch the courage? And is it even possible in that short amount of time that they can reach that level? Yeah. I mean, they're not going to catch their courage in the standings. No one is. Um, yeah. I, I will be shocked if any, if any other team wins the NWSL shield, I, I'm, I, I feel like the courage have that locked up unless they start yeah. just playing five verse. Yeah. This is more 11. about when you step. So, Say the Thorns end up being the fourth seed and Carolina has the one seed. Have you caught them enough in terms of what you're actually capable of doing? And I think that's the challenge right now that Seattle, Chicago, Orlando, and Portland have. Seeding matters a little bit. You want to get to that number two. But I think any of those coaches would rather have a better team and go on the road for the playoffs than make short-term sacrifices just for the sake of that home game. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know if the Thorns are going to... I don't know if the Thorns are going to get to the point where they can catch the the courage in terms of being able to potentially beat them in the playoffs um, at this point. Uh, it, it, I feel like even though I think it's fair what you said, where this game in and of itself maybe shouldn't be alarming because of the fact that the Thorns came out all, all right and we're going toe to toe with the courage and, and really the goals were, were a tale of six minutes um, kind of changing the game and maybe you say that this isn't so different than the Thorns have played this year but what's alarming to me on top of the fact that it is clear that the courage are on another level and I'm not sure if the Thorns or any team in the NWSL is going to catch them this year is that I think the Thorns just haven't been up to the level we expected them this year uh, and it yes that's partly the results just aren't falling their way. But at some point you can't just say, oh, they're getting unlucky. Um, They've been making mistakes. They've been having breakdowns, mental breakdowns and defensive breakdowns in big moments. And obviously you see that with the three goals in six minutes, they, they completely lost it uh, after conceding that second goal. And they weren't able to respond in a way you want to see from a team that is supposed to be a contender. And so I'm just not seeing what I think we need to see out of this Thorns team so far this year. That could change with Haley Rosso coming back. That could change with French coming back. That could change with maybe Caitlin Ford uh, coming back towards the end of the season this team is capable of bringing it all together but there's only so long we can keep saying that and we haven't seen i think what we want from them yet so in that sense it is a bit alarming to me i completely agree with that um and like i said this isn't alarming if you didn't think washington and utah games or any other game this season was alarming but there were a lot of people and i think yourself included looked at those games and me too i'm trying to explain why the thorns aren't meeting expectations 
it's alarming compared to where we thought the Thorns were going to be at this point. Now, you take Wednesday's result, you add AD French, you add Emily Sonnet, you add Haley Rasso, you add Caitlin Ford. A lot of that gap gets closed, but I don't think three goals of the gap gets closed. So what is the task ahead? You've got to start getting those pieces together. You've start, got to start reforming. And I think uh, the telling things, one of the telling things from this game, you mentioned after the second goal, there seemed to be a collapse. That indicates to me that they sincerely felt going into halftime down one nothing that they were still in this game. And the missed marking on the cross for Dabinia, and that goes in, just crushed them mentally. And they weren't there in the next six or eight minutes. And they give up a goal on a long throw. They give up a goal on a corner kick. These are normally areas of the game, set pieces, dominating physical play in the box, where the Thorns are one of the best in the league. But after that second goal went in, it looked like they had trouble getting their minds in a space where they can they compete at their normal level. I think they acknowledged that a bit after the game too. So I don't think that collapse is going to happen again. And so I think the and I think the four one is a little bit exaggerated because of it. But um, there were also some tactical things I think that Mark Parsons found out from that game that he can't do again. He can't go with a one person defensive midfield against this team. Uh, he switched that formation in that sense. And I think he also found out that the loss of Amandine Henri is huge. Uh, he, he didn't find that out. He knew. <laughs> he knew how good Amandine was. But you're talking about subtracting Amandine Henri from one team, two teams that were basically at the same level, and adding Crystal Dunn to the other. That's a big swing, and it's something that Thorns need to make up as far as that gap over the next 13 games of the season. You, you mentioned it a little bit, and obviously uh, the, the Thorns can't change the fact that Amandine Henri is not on the team, but we did see Mark... Um, you know, make some lineup changes from from the game before where they had won against Utah into this game, um, make some tactical changes. I, I mean, what did you think of Mark Parsons' approach to this game and, and what role that might have played in the result? So I didn't think it worked, but I also 100% understand why Mark Parsons would do that. This team going to the three center back formation that it did in the middle of last year has played North Carolina three times since then, and they don't, had only allowed one goal with that formation. So I understand going back to it also because North Carolina plays a front two as far as their forwards are concerned. So three center backs against two forwards is kind of a time honored trade off. The one thing that Mark did change though is in the games that he had been playing against North Carolina before we had Lindsay Horan and Amandianari or Celeste Bure as holding midfielders. He started Christine Sinclair and Tobin Heath above Lindsay and forced Lindsay to take on that task on her own. And in the first half, he admitted this, that he eventually had to change it. But in the first half, North Carolina plays a box midfield. Somebody like McCall Zerboni would win a ball. This is what happened on the penalty kick. McCall Zerboni win a ball, immediately played it to the next level of the square to Dabinia, who played a sideways pass to Crystal, uh, to Crystal Dunn's area. It was actually, actually Lynn Williams who was there at the time, who then, because the defense is adjusting and cracks are opening as the ball is going from left to right, finds Dabinia going into the gap. Um, and that kind of side-to-side movement, you just can't let happen against North Carolina that easily because defenses are going to react, seams are going to open, they have two forwards and then another attacking midfielder in the zone. And I think, you know, Mark had to find out, basically. I think he had to find out if Heath, Sinclair, and Horan could match up against four in midfield from North Carolina. And in that way, although at a high price, I think he bought some valuable information. Yeah, I, I think... Mark is probably buying some valuable information right now, but at the same time, I, he's kind of switched between, you know, roughly two sort of formations, but also tweaks within that. Um, and I'm just not sure the Thorns have found something that's really working for them yet uh, this year that they can consistently roll out. Obviously, they're going to adjust to opponents, but last year, uh, kind of the three center back formation um, that the that was so effective against North Carolina and other teams in the league just became the formation they were able to use towards the end of the year into a lot of success. And they're not having the same success in that formation. They're not having the same success when they move to the four back. I think this team just has a lot of things it needs to solve still. And it's getting to the point of the season where, where we have to see them start to solve those. I agree. I mean, being a Bay area sports fan, you know what it's like recently you do with a couple of teams trying to go for back-to-back championships, be it in baseball or in basketball. And it's hard. It's hard for a team to come back in and be focused immediately. And I think the Thorns have put themselves in a place where they have to hope that focus and that form is there at the end of the season. Because as we've talked about a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, the gap is too big to claim a shield. And even at this point, I think they need to be worrying about much more about where they, where they can build to just as a group in the abstract than trying to gain the number two seed. Go on the road, be the better team on the road, take that trade off. Uh, I think 
one thing that we should insert here is a question from Jeffrey. Have the transfer windows passed for the NWSL? Can the Thorns pick up a forward and defensive midfielder from overseas? Is it a salary cap issue? So we're in the middle of an open transfer window right now. I think this question is interesting because because of the lack of international slots available, the lack of salary cap room, and the fact that they've already gone out and gotten Anastasia Negosovic, it's going to be difficult to add. That being said, I think you can see that there are a couple of players that have been added or will be added that kind of fit the concerns. If Haley Rosso and Caitlin Ford get healthy, it's almost greedy to ask for more offensive firepower to come in. The Thorns will definitely have enough talent to be able to compete at that point. As far as defensive midfielders are concerned, we talked about the absence of Amandine Ari. You're not going to go out and get another person like her. We're starting to see Angela Salem get a little bit more playing time. And I think if Mark Parsons wants to play two midfielder formations, Angela Salem throughout her playing career and the championships she's she's won throughout that time has proven that she can be somebody, especially in a limited role that she would have next to Lindsey Horan and behind Christine Sinclair and Tobin Heath, can be very, very good. And what was it against uh, Utah? She had that crunching tackle against Katrina Gorey. And I just thought to myself, that's the Angela Salem that has made her reputation in this league. I don't think it's a talent issue. I don't think they need more players. I think they just need to internally improve. Yeah, and I, I think that's how they're going to have to approach it this year. In terms of the f- attacking uh, group that they have, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think that when you get Rosso and Kalen Ford back, this team has plenty of talent in the attack to do what they need to do. The questions at defensive midfield, I, I think, are still there. Uh, with with Amandine Henri gone, with Ali Long obviously not on the team uh, as well. I think that's something that we're going to find out, uh, whether they have the personnel to, to be good enough in defensive midfield. I don't think we're going to have a change this uh, transfer window during the season. But if, if this season ends up being an unsuccessful one, I, I think that's definitely an area they're going to have to look at in the offseason. Absolutely. Okay, we've gotten some of our predictions out there, thanks to Sam McDowell prodding <laughs> us. We were in a weird situation because Sam, when he asked us for our predictions, we looked at each other over Skype and immediately were like, we're not supposed to do this right now, but also immediately concluded that, well, it'd be really rude if we said no to his questions. So just tell me the logic behind your prediction. Um, Well, so yeah, uh, for the Kansas City game on Saturday, um, like I said, I predicting 2-1. Uh, Kansas City win. I'm going to, my side bet, throwing in there, some oh, new info. These. I'm going to say an Audi goal. Uh, so maybe we can start going to that over-under and seeing if you can build up the goals there. Um, but yeah, I, I just think, I, I, it's not too different actually from what Sam said. I think Chara not being in there is huge for the Timbers. I'm not confident in the defense right now without Liam Ridgewell and adding in no Chara. Um, and given how well Kansas City has done this year, I just think that's going to be too much. I, I, I don't see the Timbers being able to overcome that. I think at home they're going to put in a competitive game, but they haven't shown they can win without Chara, and the defense has been shaky enough as it is. So I think Kansas City is going to find a way to win this one. Yeah, I'm going to tell the listeners, don't buy into my prediction on this one because I kind of went like 85% of my the way through a process on this and then stopped because I came to a place that I thought was fun. So when I was researching Kansas City for the content this week and looking forward to Sam coming on, I just saw a lot of warning signs. I saw that they had piled up a lot of their numbers against teams that um, aren't the best in the world. We're playing down men. Uh, They're currently without Felipe Gutierrez, uh, who is their leading goal scorer still, but they performed fine without him. Um, I'm not so sure that what we're seeing as far as a hot start isn't their typical hot start. With the Timbers, Tara's absence is absolutely huge. But the Timbers have been able to consistently score goals of late. Chiraz played a kind of a part in that too, so that's a little bit scary. I do buy into this formation idea, and I also think that the Timbers have responded to challenges this year in a way that makes me think that if they embrace this as a challenge, this week as a challenge, as far as not having Chiraz there, having faith in themselves to overcome it the same way that they eventually got their first win on coming back home, eventually beat NYCFC, had that great performance against LAFC, responded when they went to Dallas when things looked so dire after the Red Bulls. Something tells me that this group is going to take up that challenge again. If they hadn't have beaten, if they had beaten the Galaxy last week, I kind of think maybe they wouldn't think this week was such a challenge. But I think being humbled a little bit by the Galaxy, I'm going to go with 2-1 Timbers. Now, my normal process, I would have walked through all the Timbers issues too in my head and then predict something different and said, oh, Chara's big, I'm going to downgrade this to 1-1. 
but I'm just going to go with the storyline here and pick two one. And what's your uh, what's your side bet going to be? My side bet, huh? Do I have to have one? No. Um, I'm going to go with Andres Flores getting the same chances that he got against LA, but actually converting one this time. His first her first MLS goal. I'm going with that. I'm going for high point value on this one too. We <laughs> talked about this last week. I'm going for a long shot here that if this comes good, I'm going to be demanding a high score from you. All right. Well, I, I think Timbers fans will be a, a lot happier if Flores converts the same chances he had right. a, against LA. Um, we don't have any Thorns game to predict because the Thorns are, are taking time off for the international break. They won't play again until they go on the road to Chicago on June 16th. But we do, before the Kansas City game, uh, we, we are going to have a U.S. Open Cup game here. We talked about it a little bit, but we do have to give our predictions uh, for that before we go. So what are you thinking? Timbers versus San Jose, 7.30 Wednesday in the U.S. Open Cup. I think we're going to have two second-choice teams. Uh, uh, <laughs> Giovanni Savarese has done a good job of mixing in a lot of his second-choice players already this year, so they're kind of... At a, at a decent level, T2, we've talked about a lot, is more talented than ever, so the drop-off isn't that severe. I look for the Timbers against the San Jose team that I do expect to rotate, even though if I were their coach, I'd probably find an excuse not to. I look for them to win 3-1, and again, swinging for the fences here. <laughs> I'm going with Madhu Jadama off a corner kick in the first half. All of those things have to be true for me to get points. <laughs> and if that happens, I want triple digit points. That's a lot. That's a lot heading of narrowing in, down yeah, there for me. Heading in a corner kick in the first half. That yes. is uh, okay. Yeah, that would be a lot of points um, coming out of U.S. Open Cup games. So now you have a reason to care about the U.S. Open Cup. Um, oh, I actually do so yeah. much now. You, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I... I'm also kind of banking on the idea that both teams are going to rotate and it's not just going to be the Timbers that are rotating. And based on that, based on that, the Timber that T2 has done well this year that we've seen the depth the Timbers have, um, I, I'm more confident, I guess, in the Timbers' depth than, than San Jose's potential depth. So I'm going to go with the Timbers' 2-0 win. Uh, Foster Langsdorf, who I expect to start, is going to get uh, his first goal for the first team. Mm. Sounds, sounds like that would be some big news if he, if he did. Um, yes, I, I hope that happens, but after Madhuja Thomas <laughs> In the second half. It yes. has to happen in the second half. All right. Um, well, that's all that we have, uh, except for the fantasy update. Um, so before we let you go, for uh, those of you out there still in the fantasy group, um, in third place, we have SFCP Lord with uh, 1,381 points. Second place, we have Racing Club Day. Someday we need to make sure we don't have the end of that name cut off. But uh, that's second place with 1,398 points. And then Beer City FC uh, is in first place with 1,453 points. Um, that's all from us. Uh, we're Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. That's Richard Farley. You can find us every week on Oregon Live, uh, Timbers.com, and still Stumptown Footy. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care.